Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. So before we dive into the show, we wanted to say thank you so much to all the listeners out there. It's always great to have you dive in with us on all these great topics we were to have able to have three times a week. And if you want to hear more about us, go to urusiholdings.com. You can find everything about us from projects we're working on, more about our team members, how we break it up, and all the resources we offer. And if you want to invest, learn more about investing with us there. Also, make sure to check out our multifamily meetup if you're local here in New Jersey. We run the New Jersey Multifamily Investment Meetup, and it happens to be every second Tuesday of the month uh, here in North Central Jersey. So if you're in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, make sure to check it out. And lastly, if you want to learn more about investing in apartment buildings, go to multifamilyfoundation.com. All right, check out the show. Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Back again, we have Greg Dickerson. Hey, Greg, how you doing? Jason, how are you? Doing good. Doing great. And so if you did miss Greg on episode 275, you should definitely go back to that episode. There's just so much on building a business, creating a platform where you can really dive in and control the business and just maximize your real estate business for so many different angles. But just a little recap on Greg. He's an entrepreneur, real estate investor, and developer for over 20 years, brought and developed and sold over 200 million in real estate, built and remodeled hundreds of custom homes and commercial buildings and started 12 different companies from the ground up. Now that's just a little teaser because you need to go back to episode 275, check it out, hear the whole story. But for that, we're going to transition today and we're going to talk about something that's a hot new topic that we haven't focused on at all, but Greg has really been diving into the whole opportunity of opportunity zones as those pattern words go. And that's going to be our talk track for today. So Greg, thanks so much for coming on. And we, we had this discussion when you actually asked me the question of I had done any work in opportunity zones, which we hadn't. And that led us to your point that you're doing a lot of projects from there. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a just a slight overview of what an opportunity zone is considered or some of the, the framework that we know as of now, and of course, being of today, um, and then what you're working on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an unfortunate name, opportunity zone, because, you know, you get tongue, you know, caught up between, there's a lot of opportunities in the opportunity zone. Yeah, but, exactly, right. Um, so it's a federal, uh, part of the federal tax, uh, you know, jobs tax act, uh, 2017, um, where the governors of all the states were given the opportunity <laughs> to create these opportunity zones in their states. So they could go in their state, pick areas and designate them as opportunity zones. They were supposed to be and are based upon income metrics. So there were, the idea was to generate business in low income depressed areas. So that was the whole purpose behind the opportunity zone laws. Now, what it created was, um, a vehicle to invest capital gains into real estate or businesses in these zones. So there's been a lot of different rounds of uh, guidance and rules clarification since it came out in 2017. So it's, it's gotten a lot better here with this last round. They really lightened up a lot of the, uh, a lot of the rules and regulations. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, one of them would be if you were to buy an existing building, you have to put the equal amount of money into the property uh, that equals the value of the building. So you back land out if it's a $2 million building, land's 500, building's 1.5, you'd have to put 1.5 into that building. The idea behind the Opportunity Zone was to create um, an avenue for business startups. So if there's a warehouse that's been out of service for five years and you're a manufacturer, 
you might just need to sweep and put paint up to be able to utilize that facility to start manufacturing something. So in the first round of regulations, that was prohibitive. You know, you would have had to put 1.5 million into that factory. Now, you know, that building, that warehouse, now you can just sweep it, you know, clean it up, paint it, put whatever you want into it just to get it functional. So that rule was relaxed uh, as well as recycling of capital, things like that. But at the end of the day, what the opportunity zone is, it's, it's geographic areas within states that have been designated by the governor. And if there's a property or if you want to start a business or buy a business in the opportunity zone, you can take a capital gain, invest that capital gain into that business or property. Uh, after the first five years, you get a 10% write down on that gain. After seven years, you get an additional 5% write down. And at the end of 10 years, which is the long-term hold cycle of the vehicle, um, anything that you earn on those gains is tax-free. So that's the big payday for these opportunity zones. Um, unlike a 1031, it's similar in, in, you know, to a 1031 in terms of you're deferring a gain, um, but you have six months to deploy the capital into the opportunity zone project or business. And um, at the end of the day, whatever you make on that's tax-free. So you don't have to do another tax exchange at the back end like you do um, you know, with the tax exchange program now. So it's much better a vehicle than a tax exchange, except that it's long-term. You got to hold 10 years. Um, so that's, that's the thing. So there's, there's a lot of capital chasing these deals right now. So maybe I missed um, this part when you were speaking mm -hmm. to it, but if, so if you have the original capital gain that you roll into an opportunity zone project, and now you're going to get that 10% at year five, 5% at year seven. So 15% total, right? And now 15 total right down. That's correct. Now you get to your, uh, your, your 10 now and say at year 10 now you accomplished at any of your gains throughout the whole of the project or now uh so basically are, are you're not going to get hit past that year 10 but that's right you can sell the business the property and any profits you make on that gain is tax-free and so any anything you sold in that would be tax-free so you'd be able to roll those funds but you would and now for the the initial capital gains you would have uh, up to 85 percent would still be allocated yeah yeah, you still have to pay. You're just deferring, you know, the gain and you're writing it down 15%. So you still have to pay a portion of the gain, but everything else you make on is tax-free. So basically you can use that money, take the advantage of that money for the, the 10 years you have it, get that 15% discount. And now anything in the gains, you get a hundred percent back to you to be able to roll forward to other projects. That's huge. Well, you don't even have to roll it forward. It, you can take it, put it in the bank. It's tax-free. So you can invest a $1 million gain that makes a hundred million dollars in profit over 10 years. You can take that $100 million, put it in the bank, tax-free. And now you do need to- Never, ever. <laughs> you never pay tax ever. That's amazing. Yeah. And now looking at projects from a standpoint, you do have to create a fund to be able to put together for the project to start, or, or how does it work with funds going forward from day one when you're looking for projects? So uh, there's a couple of ways to do it. So there's equity funds out there and investment funds out there that have already- um, are already raising capital to deploy into opportunity zone projects and businesses. So there's already equity funds out there. There's, I don't know, a hundred and something of them um, that are already there. They've already done the work. It's already existing, but it's really simple. At the end of the day, you can go buy a building that's in an opportunity zone or a property that you want to build ground up. You can go buy that building or property that's in an opportunity zone, set up an LLC. Okay. And at the end of the, the year, you just simply declare, you know, there's a, there's a, form that you have to fill out to send into the IRS, declaring that as an opportunity zone uh, fund, you know, to make it a qualified opportunity zone fund. I mean, it's really that simple. It's one document. You send it into the IRS. 
So you can accept capital gains into the LLC that is doing that project. So it's gotta be separate from you. You know, it can't, you know, you just set up a, a project in its own LLC, just like you would any other multifamily or residential uh, or commercial project you're doing. You, you, the LLC owns that property. The capital gains gets put into an account that that LLC owns. And at the end of the year, you send that letter of designation into the IRS and your qualified opportunity zone fund. I mean, it's that simple. Amazing. And now for projects you're working on, are you focusing, is there a specific niche you're focusing on within this or are you doing both the business side and the real estate side? Yeah. You know, the business side would be great. Um, I haven't seen a business that would be interesting in, in the opportunity zone and that regulation changed too. The first ruling said you had to derive 50% of your income from the zone. Yeah. So they've changed that because the idea was they want the next Google to come out of an opportunity zone. So now you can do your business anywhere as long as your employees are in the opportunity zone and certain amount of payrolls in the opportunity zone. So, uh, you know, I, I like to do equity capital as well. I like to, to buy and build businesses. So if I found the right one, I would do it. I've been thinking about startups and starting something up in an opportunity zone uh, and then receive, you know, so I can receive the funding to capitalize the company. So I'm in that you know, kind of quandary right now with the rule change um, and as well as the business model. So initially when the rules came out, I was focusing strictly on ground up development, you know, because of the improvement rule, that's an easy, uh, easy test. So now with the rule change, it opens up the door for a lot more um, existing properties to purchase and renovate uh, without having to meet that, um, you know, that 100% rule where you had to, you know, value, uh, put in the same amount of money as the building is valued at. So, um, so I'm able to look now at a lot more existing assets, a lot more vacant buildings, you know, things like that. So it's really opened up the doors. And that's what I do. I'm out on the road all day, every day, looking for opportunities. Looking at the space here, what are you doing to, to hedge yourself for, for these projects, right? And so it's a hot new topic. I was even talking about a property today where it looks like they had put that word into their value and, and the deal didn't make sense. What are you doing to protect yourself from just the, the, the inflated prices that are coming along with properties that, that if it wasn't an opportunity zone, wouldn't be there? We just pass it by. You know, uh, if the seller or the agent representing a seller thinks that uh, property in an opportunity zone is just going to exponentially uh, increase. Uh, it, it's not. It's not like a 1031 tax exchange where somebody has to do something. This is a very deliberate um, strategic placement where, you know, an individual or a fund has received capital gains and they've got time to place it or they just, you know, they move it and, you know, they just uh, pay, the gain, pay the gain, pay the tax and they move on. They don't deploy the capital. So um, this is very different than a 1031. It's smart capital looking to go into these deals. There's opportunity zones everywhere. So uh, unless it's a very unique property in and of itself, just because it's in an opportunity zone is not going to artificially inflate the price. The deals have to stand on their own and they still have to be great deals in order for the capital to go into it because of 10 year play. So that capital needs to know that they've got a good project, a good return, and there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot of opportunity zones out there. There's a lot of developers that are uh, creating a pipeline for these funds to go into. There's a lot of funds that, that are gonna go into it. Um, with the recycling of capital, I think maybe you were thinking about that before. So if you take a gain and you deploy it into a project and you want to sell that project or re refinance before 10 years is up, well then you have a certain amount of time that you can take that gain and reinvest it into another opportunity zone project and then start the program over again. So uh, that's where that recycling of capital 
you know, comes along where you can build and build and build and really take advantage of the program. Can you talk about, and I'm sure we're, we're still in the early stages here, can you talk about a project, maybe it doesn't have to be specific, maybe a case study on, on how the numbers are working on a project you're going over? Yeah, so we were working on a couple of hotel developments, ground up developments, and, um, you know, it's just like anything else, you know, we got a target at 18 to 20%, you know, internal rate of return. Um, so at the end of the day, buy the land, build the building, and, you know, the cash flow on that needs to return, uh, uh, you know, an 18 to 20% IRR over that 10 year period. So uh, that's not easy to do, uh, especially when you're developing ground up construction costs, as you know, are just through the roof right now. So it's making it very difficult for some of these deals to pencil, even though they're in the, in the they're in the opportunity zone, which can add another seven to 10% potentially uh, to the IRR. That doesn't even matter. Uh, the deal has to pencil out 18 to 20. If you can get over 20%, it's even better. Um, so that's one project in particular, uh, that I'm looking at. I'm looking at some infill development, um, where there's some buildings that can be taken down and redeveloped, uh, into residential. And, uh, you know, th those types of things are a little bit more predictable than the bigger commercial uh, properties. And then with this recent rule change about the business, you know, I've really been looking at a couple of different software companies, uh, you know, to potentially start up in an opportunity zone here in Charlottesville. We have some really good areas. It's really interesting. So the opportunity zone aren't always depressed. So they use um, income uh, metrics to um, designate these zones. And then there's a couple of resources out there where you can go look where they rate opportunity zones. So you can look in your city and you can see how some of the zones are rated or your state. And uh, there's some very good prime properties that are just happen to be in an opportunity zone just because some of the income in the surrounding areas that were used to calculate the zone metrics um, are a little bit lower than, you know, some other areas, but, uh, you know, so that's something I'm looking at as well. I think that'd be a lot of fun. That'd be interesting. So what are some of the, do you, could you track some of those resources? What are people using to, to designate good opportunity zones versus Steve Glickman, who is the founder, uh, well, he's the brain trust behind the whole opportunity zone project. He's got a website and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but uh, if you look at Steve Glickman opportunity zones, you could go to his website and it gives you a map. Uh, so you can type in your state or your city and it'll show you the opportunity zones. And then he's got those resources that rates the zones. It's all totally free uh, online. A lot of great information on his website. And, uh, you know, like I said, I can't remember. Some states have their own maps. So you can Google opportunity zones in New Jersey or California or Virginia. And uh, some states have created their own uh, opportunity zone maps. And then, of course, he has a national one. So it's uh, really good resources out there. So if you were, of course, you know, targeting a flip or targeting a multifamily property, you know, looking at those metrics, you, you have a, a set series of metrics you're focusing on. Um, so we have our return metrics, you know, we have the, the data metrics we can look at from opportunity zone sites here to show us good versus bad. What are some other metrics you're looking at to say that this is a, an area I want to be in and focus on? Well, it's, you know, it's all the same thing. So me as a developer, as an investor, it always goes back to demand. So the thing about opportunity zones it's not build it and they will come. There are opportunity zones that are out in the middle of nowhere. So it's not like you can just go build something because it's an opportunity zone or even a building that might be in a city or a town. Um, you know, there, there are some areas in the country that are still very depressed, you know, um, Detroit, you know, cities like that. There's some areas of Detroit where, I, you know, you can't give property away uh, that are in the opportunity zone and they're just not going to be good investments. And then you have areas like Portland. The entire city of Portland is an opportunity zone. So, you know, but even within that, there's probably some stuff you're not going to want to mess with. So I still look at the basic fundamentals of any real estate investment. Number one, the end game, right? Your exit strategy. What is your exit strategy? Are you either going to sell it 
or you're going to hold it. And, you know, at the end of the day, we all liquidate. So everybody's a seller at some point. So you always have to look at the sale. And then you've got a, you know, long-term, short-term strategy of the hold, uh, whether it's a reposition uh, or value add. Um, so you always look at that. And then in order to determine that, you got to determine the demand. What's the demand in the area? So I always go where there's demand. I want to be in areas where people want to be, whether it's commercial or residential. Uh, I look at those things. And then I look at the highest and best use of that product. So it could be a building, it could be land, it could be, uh, it could be multifamily, it could be a storage facility, whatever. Um, I look at that project, what's the highest and best use? How can I add value? And I'm opportunistic. I like heavy value add. I like ground up. Um, I don't mind tearing down and rebuilding. You know, those are the types of things that I like to do that, you know, I've done my entire career. So um, that's really the way I evaluate a project before I even get involved. You know, what, what does the exit strategy look like? What's my highest and best use? What's the demand in the area? And then I start working my numbers backwards and I say, okay, if it's a rental product and I'm going to hold it and it's an office retail multifamily, you know, there's going to be a certain threshold of rents you're going to get. If it's a hotel, there's going to be an average daily rate in your market. So you look at the average daily rate and you have to deliver something that's going to be within those parameters. Um, you know, you don't want to go in and think that you're just going to build Disneyland again and people are going to pay whatever to go, right? Uh, it just doesn't work that way anymore unless you have something that's really unique, really special in a class A market like New York, you know, DC, Atlanta, Charlotte, you know, your major metro markets, Chicago, there are trophy assets there that you can command a premium well above markets uh, for certain things. You're on Wall Street, you know, you're in Manhattan, um, you know, th those types of areas, Charlottesville, downtown, around our downtown area, you know, you can get a premium on things. But at the end of the day, you need to make sure you understand what the market will bear and then you got to deliver the product you know, I like to come under market. I like to deliver new or reposition product under market. I like to underwrite my assets and what I call scenario tests and sensitivity analysis. I like to underwrite my deals and look at what happens when I have to come backwards. What happens when I have to lower rents? What happens when I have to have uh, vacancy to compete with the market and things like that? And that's how I look at things. So I'm very conservative. So what that means is I have to bypass a lot of deals and I'm okay with that. I don't have to do a deal. I can, you know, I can go fishing and not lose money, right? So uh, that's my philosophy. I love it. And if you're looking at your demand driver, drivers for demand, what, what are the top line uh, metrics you're going to focus on? So employment is, is a big one. Education, um, you know, medical facilities. Uh, so you want job growth, you want income growth, you want um, population growth, which all of those kind of go in together. Um, so those are all the things. Now, all of that aside, you can have all that in a hot market and let's say Charlottesville, Virginia. So we're a really fast growing market. We have the University of Virginia. We have hospital network. We're becoming, you know, the Palo Alto East, you know, a lot of tech companies. So there's a lot of people moving into Charlottesville. So there's a lot of older areas that are going through a gentrification process where, um, you know, the buildings are coming in and getting renovated. Housing is getting renovated. Infill developments going on. And then we have the, the suburban developments around it. So, you know, again, you look at where the population is going, where people want to be, unless you've got a really long-term vision and the ability to, with, you know, to hold long-term, you got to kind of go where the action is and where the demand is. And, you know, but there's a lot of people that have, you know, have done extremely well with a 20, 30 year view and buying land on the outlying areas. And you've heard those stories, but those are very difficult now um, in this day and age to make happen because, you know, the, the demand is where it is. With gas prices where they are, people don't want to commute if they don't have to. Uh, so that's important. So uh, those, are, those are the general metrics that you're going to look at in any area. You're going to look at, you know, population growth, job growth, income growth, 
Uh, and then you're going to look at the overall development pipeline, how much inventory is out there. And you want to make sure that you're not, you know, putting something out there that's, that's going to come online with a whole bunch of other inventory that you have to compete with. When you're basically trying to figure out what's the highest and best use, how do you go about that process? So highest and best use analysis is taking a look at um, where you are and what is around you. So if you want to do commercial, you need a lot of rooftops. Um, so, you know, if it's going to be a neighborhood strip center and you want to do a Starbucks and a Chipotle and a hair cuttery and, you know, one of those types of deals, 10, 12,000 square foot little strip center. Um, those are great properties to own. Uh, those are uh, service uses that people need regardless of the economy. People, people want to eat. They got to get their nails done, their hair done. Um, you know, those types of things, um, get their taxes done. So you're always going to have those types of businesses um, that are going to thrive in these little neighborhood centers, eating out, you know, things like that. So you take a look at the area that you're in and for commercial uh, or even office, you need a lot of rooftops in that area. You got to have a population that you can serve. Um, if you've got a lot of commercial, you need a lot of rooftops. So, you know, you just kind of look at where the holes are in the market, what the, you know, what's missing, what are the gaps. And again, you know, you really don't want to think you can be a pioneer and put the wrong use in the wrong place. Um, you know, if there's a hospital area and all the medical offices are all kind of in one area where most people go, you don't want to go 30 miles away and put a medical office up and think you're going to, you know, drive traffic there. You know, you want to kind of keep it consolidated, keep it where the demand already is, give the market what it's already looking for. Uh, unless you have the ability to, you know, hold long-term and see a growth trend, you know, to a certain area, then you can kind of be a pioneer in an area. But, um, you know, in, in the economy we're in, the market we're in, you want to look at those um, ser core service industries like healthcare, education, medical, um, dental, you know, food service, uh, you know, those dry cleaners and nails, you know, things like that. So those, those types of retail assets um, are what you want to look at. Those are great assets to own. Um, office sector, you got to be careful. Um, you know, the suburban office market is taking a hit. A lot of those are getting repurposed. Uh, senior living is a great market to be in right now. And there's all kinds of different models there for um, apartment style senior living, as well as assisted living and long-term memory care facilities, you know, things like that. I think there's a gap in the market there. That's a very different business model. Um, Hotels can be good in certain areas, but construction costs are so high right now, it's almost impossible to make a hotel work anywhere, um, you know, with the average daily rates that you have to get just to support new construction. So um, those are some of the things I look at in terms of determining highest and best use. Population count, um, existing services, uh, existing industries, where are the gaps? Very helpful. Great data points. And going back to opportunity zones, how are you now positioning yourself going forward with the change in the tax code? I'm trying to, you know, so there's a lot of capital out there looking for these deals. So I'm trying to position myself where I've, I'm creating a pipeline for the fund. So I'm not going to create a fund. I'm not going to go do that. What I'm going to be, what I want to do is be a pipeline of good deals for the funds to invest into. Um, Cause there is a lot of capital looking for good opportunities. So that's kind of my business plan moving forward. And it keeps me kind of, uh, hedged against uh, a downturn because these are 10 year, you know, outlooks. Uh, so it, it, you know, and it's patient capital um, and it's capital that's not going to overpay. So it's, it's going to keep us all disciplined on the analytics and on the basics and the fundamentals. And uh, you know, so that's really what I'm focused on right now. So I'm, I'm out every day looking for deals, looking for opportunities because it's not easy. I mean, there's a lot of competition out there and you know, everybody is waking up to opportunity zones every day there's more and more people becoming aware and getting involved. And like you said, a lot of sellers are trying to take advantage of it. And, you know, 
nobody is doing that. Nobody is overpaying just because it's an opportunity zone. So, you know, they will come back down once they realize they're not going to sell. That's amazing. Well, this has been great talk track. I'm glad you came back on and gave us a lot of good feedback about opportunity zones. Again, if people want to reach out and discuss more with you, uh, find out more about you, what's the best place to find you? Yeah, gregdickerson.com. All my contact info is on there. My number is 434-326-3903. My cell phone, I'm always always available looking at deals and opportunities and um, you know, feel free to reach out anytime. Awesome. Greg, this was great. Thanks so much for coming in there, giving us some more guidance and opportunity zones. Look forward to having you back on. We'll talk about the next phase here of where you're going and some of these projects that have uh, really started hitting the ground. So thanks so much for coming back on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Good. This is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast. Huge uh, thank you to Greg Dickerson for coming back on the show. Bye now. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation Podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.